0: The following sermon was delivered on August 1st, 2021, at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this sermon entitled A Plan of Redemption Part 1 on Ruth 3 1 through 10. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. You've often heard it said that there's no such thing as a silly question, haven't you? Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) When you study the history of, uh, let's say, philosophy or theology long enough, you stumble across some silly, even pointless questions. Take, for example, this question. When a pig is led to the market uh, with a rope tied around its neck, which is held at the other end by a man... Is the pig led to the market by the rope or by the man? Evidently, there was a great and ultimately unresolved debate over this issue among philosophers and theologians in 12th century England. Now, that question seems rather silly to me, and I suspect it seems kind of silly to you. What's leading the pig, the rope or the man? What does it matter? But you don't need to study medieval philosophy to come up with silly questions. Just hang around people long enough and you'll get a silly question. Or go on the internet for any period of time and you'll start seeing silly questions. For example, I read on the internet just the other day that one little boy asked his dad, Daddy, how old was I when I was three? And now that's a silly question, isn't it? It kind of answers itself. But not all questions are silly, of course. For the next couple of weeks, we will look at the third chapter of Ruth, in which Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz handle questions like, what does redemption look like for Ruth and Naomi? Or more pointedly, who will redeem Ruth and Naomi? This question, in fact, has been facing Ruth and Naomi now for a couple of chapters, hasn't it? Redemption's at the heart of the book. That's why I titled this series, The Search for a Redeemer. The first chapter established the need for redemption as the narrative brought us from famine in Bethlehem to uh, death and distress and tragedy and disaster in the pastureland or fields of Moab, and then back again. And the second chapter, it brings forth hope doesn't it, from the barley harvest in the fruitful fields of Boaz of Bethlehem. And now here in chapter 3, with that very brief and cursory summary uh, behind us, the narrative slows way down. It's been several weeks, perhaps even a couple of months, since in the providence of God, Ruth happened upon the barley fields of Boaz. And her situation, it comes to a head. It comes to a pivot point at the threshing floor After a great feast celebrating the harvest. My approach to this chapter um, is a bit unconventional in that I'm not taking it all in one sermon. I'm going to break it up into two parts, covering two different plans of redemption, two complementary but different ways of answering that question who will redeem Ruth and Naomi? Today, we will consider Naomi's plan of redemption. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll consider a modified plan laid out by Boaz as he brings some additional information into the mix. Now, what I hope to show you today is that the sincere search for a redeemer is founded upon faith, marked by obedience, and results in spiritual blessing. The sincere search for a redeemer is founded upon faith, marked by obedience, and results in spiritual blessing. I'll flesh this out in three parts. You can probably guess them. First, verses 1 through 5 detail Naomi's faith-filled plan. Her plan founded upon faith. Her faith-filled plan. Second, verses 6 and 7 record Ruth's obedient search. Her sincere search for a redeemer, characterized or marked by obedience. Her obedient search. And then third, verses 8 through 10, bring us to Boaz's blessed discovery. The blessed result. The result of blessing. And we'll find out who exactly is blessed in this case in Boaz's blessed discovery in verses 8 through 10. But we begin with Naomi's faith-filled plan in verses 1 through 5. Like all... Uh, Well-thought-out plans. Naomi's plan contains two features, an objective or a goal. What are we aiming for here? And then action steps to get from here to there. What are we going to do to get there? Naomi sets forth her goal in verse 1. Look at it with me. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Notice that Naomi is looking for something. She's on a search. She's seeking after something very specific in what follows in her plan. The New American Standard Bible here and the New King James Version render Naomi's sought-after goal as security. For Ruth, That's the word in our text. If you go and you look at the King James Version or the English Standard Version, they translate that same word as rest. And in the other translations use the word home. I think that's what it is in the NIV, in the Contemporary English Version. All three of these words, security, rest, home, all three are acceptable and faithful to the Hebrew text. You see, Naomi, her goal, what she's searching for is a resting place, a secure home for Ruth, her widowed daughter-in-law. Naomi knows the pain of widowhood, doesn't she? In fact, recall from chapter 1 that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he died at least 10 years before Ruth's husband, Mathlon, dies. And so she has known widowhood much longer than Ruth has. Her heart perhaps in fact, I'm sure of it. If if her words in chapter 1 were sincere, her heart is broken for Ruth because she knows exactly what it is she feels, a childless widow. Whereas Naomi never remarried, it's too late for her. She hopes to find a husband for Ruth that she might be redeemed out of her situation of desperate need. At first, she thought, well, this is impossible. Ruth's a Moabitess. Nobody in Bethlehem's going to marry her. But now, this idea comes into her mind. This man, Boaz, he, he's a close relative of ours. Perhaps he, perhaps he's the answer. Perhaps he will redeem Ruth out of her situation. And he will perform the function of a kinsman redeemer and marry Ruth. There's hope for Ruth now that she might be redeemed out of her situation of desperate need. Now, this is a noble goal. The establishment of a home in the wake of loss and tragedy, the finding of a husband for a widow or a wife for a widower, this is a blessed thing. We recognize how this is good. Surely you know of someone who's lost a spouse to death. Maybe you attended the funeral or had the surviving spouse to your home. And you noticed the unique pain etched into his or her features. It's a singular uh, distress to lose a husband or a wife to death. But then, perhaps the Lord granted that friend of yours a new spouse, and a new home, a new life, and new joys. This is a good thing, isn't it? The same is true for those of us who have suffered greatly through divorce, too. It's a bit different. But the home is broken, not by physical death, but by what the 24th chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith describes as functionally equivalent to the death of a spouse. And that relationship's ruptured, the covenant's broken, It's as if the spouse had died in abandoning or committing adultery against or abusing uh, the, the offended party, as it says in our confession. But redemption from that situation may be found in the forging of a new relationship, a new marriage in the Lord, and a new home. Though we must be careful not to despise singleness... Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, that it is good to remain unmarried if able. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. Yet, we should not join the chorus of our present culture that downplays what a good thing it is to seek out and to find and and to secure a safe place, a secure home, a resting place in marriage. If you desire marriage for yourself or for your children, this is a good thing, a noble goal. And this is Naomi's goal set forth in verse 1. Verses 2 through 5 then give us Naomi's action steps toward that goal and Ruth's commitment to follow through in obedience to her mother-in-law. Look at the text with me again. Now... It's not Boaz, our kinsman, with whose maids you were. Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what you shall do. She, that is Ruth, said to her, all that you say, I will do. (laughs) Do these instructions seem a little strange to you? This is a very controversial text. It's difficult to parse out what in the world is Naomi asking Ruth to do. Some commentators have described Naomi's plan as immodest, indiscreet, seductive, even scandalous. Certainly, her instructions are difficult to read for us. We could summarize Naomi's instructions in somewhat blunt fashion as, Hey, Ruth, pretty yourself up, sneak into his bedroom, and wait for him to wake up. Then you'll know what to do. How does that strike you? I don't think that would be a very good summary. Because I don't think that what I'm insinuating there is what's going on in the text. At this point, I want to remind you, that we are reading about a situation a long time ago in a very different historical context than our own. What appears to us to be immodest or even scandalous uh, may in fact be received entirely differently by another audience. So like good detectives, as we sleuth through the scriptures, we need to consider the surroundings, need to listen for the dog that's not barking, Look at what's missing here, and then also consider, remind yourself, who's involved in this plan? Who's involved in this situation? First, the surroundings, the threshing floor. It's not a very secretive place in which to approach someone in an immodest way. In another very familiar passage, uh, we have Gideon. he, he doesn 't actually go to a threshing floor to beat the grain out of the chaff of his harvest because he 's afraid of being seen. so he goes somewhere secret, I think, into a cave or some kind of basement space uh, in order to, to beat out the grain. because a threshing floor, as we see with Areuna, the Jebusite, uh, at the end of um, at the end of uh, second. Samuel. Um, The threshing floor is a very public place. It's it's a place everyone would have access to. It's probably something like a gazebo or an open porch in that it would have a roof and maybe have one wall, uh, but it'd be otherwise very open and airy. You see, a good threshing floor would have airflow because this is how you thresh out grain. You throw the grain up in the air and you kind of beat out uh, the chaff, and then the wind takes the chaff and blows it away, because it's very light and fluffy, but the grain, which is denser and heavier, falls to the ground into a heap or into a pile that then you can manage. So that's the setting. I don't think Naomi would tell Ruth to go somewhere quite so open and, and clear to the public eye as that to do something uh, indiscreet, so to speak. Second. It would be appropriate for Ruth to clean up and to put on her best clothes to attend the celebratory harvest meal, even if she wasn't going to approach Boaz. So I think Naomi's just kind of telling her, hey, take care as you do this. If Naomi had intended for Ruth to seduce Boaz, it's likely that she would have instructed her to paint her eyes, but she doesn't do that. Kind of like the immodest Queen Jezebel in 2 Kings 9.30 or as described in Jeremiah four verse thirty, Ezekiel 23.40 and then as suggested in Proverbs 6.25 describing an immodest woman. This would be the way of the harlot to put on thick makeup to make yourself look more seductive. But that's not the way of Ruth. Ruth is no harlot and Naomi's not asking her to play that part. What do we know of Ruth and Boaz? We've considered the surroundings. We've considered uh, what's missing here as good detectives. But now let's consider the people. I just want to remind you of their character. They're virtuous people throughout the entire narrative. Boaz is described as a valiant man, translated for us as a man of, of great wealth in chapter 2, verse 1, but literally a, a mighty man of valor. And then Boaz himself, later on in this chapter, will describe Ruth in verse 11 as a woman of excellence. A point I made in a previous week. She is the Proverbs 31 woman par excellence. In fact, so much so that in ancient times, sometimes this book would be put right after Proverbs. Probably as an illustration of what a Proverbs 31 woman was like. She is no harlot. I don't deny... That the passage here, it's difficult to figure out. It, it, it looks a certain way in a certain light. But I think that there's a better explanation of Naomi's plan of redemption. She knows that Boaz will be in good spirits this night. He'll be in a good mood because he's had a successful harvest. It's coming to a close. His work is going is to be done. He can find some rest. And so she directs Ruth to make her kinsman redeemer marriage proposal tonight. And she tells her how to do it discreetly so as not to attract attention to Boaz or to herself at night and even in the middle of the night. Now, is there risk involved? Absolutely. We'll see later that Boaz has to give Ruth specific directions so as not to attract attention on her way out so people aren't going to think that there was a scandal. But is what Naomi told Ruth to do scandalous in and of itself? Absolutely not. Not necessarily. The text does not tell us that it was scandalous. Now, how does Ruth receive Naomi's instructions? Without any objection. Just as we should receive any good, lawful, and God-honoring instruction. Children, is this how you obey your parents? Without any delay, without any complaining, and with delight to obey your parents when they tell you to do something you should be doing. This is what Ephesians 6.1 says, isn't it? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What does it mean to be in the Lord? It means good, right, and God-honoring. When mommy or daddy said this morning, hey, it's time to get in the car to go to church, the right response is to hurry out to the car because your parents' instruction is good, right, and God-honoring. And this is how Ruth receives Naomi's plan and instructions. As good, right, and God-honoring. And that's how Ruth follows through in verses 6 and 7 without any hesitation, no delay. She says, all that you say, I will do. We now move forward into Ruth's obedient search in verses 6 and 7. What is she looking for? Well, according to Naomi's plan, she's looking for a secure home. She's looking for a resting place. Nothing less then a redeemer in the person of Boaz. So look at verse six with me. So she, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. Verse six gives us a summary of Ruth's obedience. She left no direction unfulfilled. She did not ignore or modify anything that Naomi told her to do. She was perfectly obedient. This is so important, so important. Have you ever tried to put together a complicated piece of furniture, like from Ikea or Target or something, or maybe a, a Lego set with a whole lot of pieces, and then you say, Oh, I don't really need the directions. I can just do this on my own. What happens? You might stumble through it a few steps. You might come up with something usable at the end, perhaps, but... It's much more likely that over and over again you're gonna to have to backtrack, you're gonna to have to restart, probably open up those instructions anyway, and then and get frustrated along the way. You see, in pursuing redemption, for Ruth here and for each of us spiritually speaking, it is important to follow the directions that we receive from God's word. Not that our obedience saves us. No, not at all. May it never be but because we are dependent on God's word and spirit to show us the way. What does Romans 1 tell us? He has made known in his creation his eternal attributes, his power, his might, and his majesty, but it is only in his word that he makes known the way of salvation. Who he is in particular as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bent inexorably to save sinners. We need his direction. We need his word. Allow me to illustrate from a story that many of you probably know. In John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress, a character named Evangelist, he finds Christian outside the walls of the city of destruction, and he directs him to follow the narrow way to the wicket gate where he will receive further directions to find relief from the heavy burden on his back and to make his way to the celestial city. However, before Christian gets very far, he runs into a wolf in sheep's clothing, Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who tells him to forsake evangelists' advice. Instead, Mr. Worldly Wise Man says, Christian must seek out a man named Legality and his son's civility in the city of morality to loose the burden from his back. Well, tragically, Christian follows Mr. Worldly Wise Man's advice. he doesn't make it as far as legality's house he doesn't get to the city of morality for along the way he falls down in terror before mount sinai representing the law which he cannot fulfill by legality civility or morality this mountain stands in the way and at this point evangelist troops up to christian he asks him how he got so far out of the way he reprimands him but then he comforts him with an encouragement to correct course and directions on how to do that. And this is what Bunyan wrote about the conclusion of their meeting. It's instructive to us as we consider the way of redemption, as we consider even Ruth's obedience and what obedience looks like to a plan of redemption. Evangelist said to Christian, Thy sin is very great, for by it thou hast committed two evils. Thou hast forsaken the way that is good to read in forbidden parts. Yet will the man at the gate receive thee. For he has good will for men. Only, said he, take heed that thou turn not aside again, lest thou perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Then did Christian address himself to go back. And evangelist, after he had kissed him, gave him one smile and bid him Godspeed. So he went on with haste. Neither spake he to any man, by the way, nor if any man asked him, would he vouchsafe them an answer? He went like one that was all the while treading on forbidden ground and could by no means think himself safe, till again he was got into the way which he left to follow Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. Just as evangelists did for Christians, so Naomi gave a clear plan to Ruth to direct her in the search for redemption. And whereas verse 6 summarizes Ruth's obedience, so much unlike Christian's obedience in Pilgrim's Progress, verse 7 gives a bit more detail. Look at it with me. When Boaz had eaten and was drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now the scene is set for Boaz and Ruth to have their long-awaited conversation. Note that he is full of good food and drink. The way the New American Standard puts it, it could be a bit ambiguous here, but he is not drunk. He's not inebriated like Noah in Genesis 9 or Lot in Genesis 19, both of whom meet with tragedy. Rather, Boaz is simply satisfied. He's satisfied in the good things of the Lord. And that's what is meant here by his heart was merry or cheerful, he was well satiated. Assuming nobody uncovers his feet and legs to the evening chill at the threshing floor, Boaz is going to have a good night of sleep. He's had a hard day's work. He's had a good meal. That's all that this text is telling us. But then Ruth shows up. And what does she do? She does everything Naomi told her to do. I want to make a point about this uncovering of Boaz's feet here, which then makes him wake up. You know, too often... You and I were reluctant to approach people for help. I've run into trouble like this, tried to do things on my own, try to be self-sufficient, not wanting to bother someone or put them out in order to receive help from them. We don't want to be annoying. I know others who have run into really big trouble by trying to do everything on their own and cutting corners rather than getting the help that's needed. But look at what Ruth does here. She literally disturbs Boaz's sleep in the middle of the night. In addition to being obedient to her mother-in-law in doing that, Ruth here proves herself to be brave and courageous and humble enough to seek for aid in the search for a redeemer. So I'd encourage you to go and to do likewise. I'm not telling you to go into someone's bedroom and make them cold so they wake up and ask them for help. No, what I'm telling you is boldly approach the throne of grace. Boldly approach the throne of grace. You're not going to bother God. Unlike Boaz, God neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's ever watchful. He's ever and always a hearer of prayer. And he's ever ready to come to the aid of his children. So when in distress, cry out for help to almighty God who will hear you. When in sorrow, cry out for comfort to meet you in that sorrow. And when in need of redemption, from sin my friends this is the way repent turn unto God call upon him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved are you here this morning and like Ruth without a hope in the world estranged from God if so this is the way you must be born again And you must repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and crying out to him for salvation, you shall be saved. That brings us to our third and final point in verses 8 to 10, Boaz's blessed discovery. Verse 8 and the first half of verse 9 record the discovery itself, and then the remainder of verse 9 and verse 10 and then following detail the blessing that follows. Look at verse 8 with me. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So as I said earlier, it's about midnight, and the chill of the evening air got to Boaz's exposed feet and legs. So the text here, it says he was startled. Really, I think what, what's happening here is he trembled or he shivered from the cold and it kind of woke him up. So he, he doesn't bend forward so much as turn in his sleep maybe and then get up and rub his eyes. And he sees, whoa, a woman sleeping at his feet here in the threshing floor of all places. What in the world is going on, he thinks. It's dark, so you can't tell exactly who it is, which backs up my point earlier. Actually, that um, Naomi telling Ruth to put on nice clothes wasn't to seduce Boaz because the whole plan involved her actually approaching him in the middle of the night when it was dark; he couldn't see her anyway. But it was rather just to prepare for the Thanksgiving meal. But anyway, he, regardless, he asks, "Who are you? Who's there?" And he dis- and what he discovers here is very interesting, and his response is very interesting. Ruth says, I am Ruth, your maid. English, it might not really seem all that significant, it's just kind of matter of fact, but in Hebrew, there's significance to the word that she uses to describe herself as maid. The word maid here, it's different than the word maid-servant in chapter 2. It's a different term. You see a maid-servant in chapter 2, I'm not using the Hebrew words because there's no reason to, but the word maid-servant in chapter 2 um, <laughs> that position in society cannot marry the master, cannot marry the one putting her to work in the fields. Those maidservants are not marriageable for Boaz. However, a maid, as Ruth uses it in chapter 3, is somebody that can marry the master, quote-unquote, in the situation. Ruth is saying, I am Ruth, your marriageable maid. Even before she makes the big ask, she's already tilling the ground, as it were. She's giving him a heads up as to what's coming. This is the great discovery that Boaz makes. Here at the climax of the narrative, everything falls into place. He discovers that Ruth, as he knew is marriageable, but now he discovers that she is desirous. She wants him to redeem her by what I described in earlier weeks as the leveret marriage, the kinsman-redeemer marriage uh, set up in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. When a sinner repents and comes to Christ for salvation through faith in him... That sinner is instantly changed from an enemy and a rebel, a transgressor of God's law, to a saint and a son, a member of God's family, of the bride of Christ, even. Likewise, Ruth here approaches Boaz not as a menial slave, but as a potential bride. It's a beautiful picture. Of the realities, the spiritual realities of our salvation, that transfer of status, that that transformation in the new birth going from rebel far away from God to beloved member of God's family seated at his table now look at the second half of verse 9 as Ruth makes her proposal, she says so spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative, you are a kinsman redeemer And then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Ruth was listening to Boaz in chapter 2 when he commended her for seeking refuge under the wings of the Lord in Israel rather than remaining in Moab. And now she draws on that same image of finding refuge under coverings or wings to request of Boaz to perform this this holy and important function of kinsman, redeemer, or close relative. He graciously then blesses her for having chosen the good of her deceased husband's family name over her own selfish desires for a husband. He says, By not going after young men, whether poor or rich, Boaz wasn't a frail old man or anything like that. Obviously, he spent the day winnowing out grain. He's got a lot of vigor. He's, he's probably not that old. And, and he's going to end up fathering a son with Ruth in chapter 4. But in this blessing, he recognizes and acknowledges that Ruth might have pursued a different kind of marriage. She might have pursued an easy way out, one that didn't really involve redeeming the family name or even helping Naomi at all. A different kind of home, more in line with youthful lusts or youthful desires and ambitions. But this commendation he gives to Ruth of selflessly rather than selfishly seeking for a new home is exactly the commendation that you will receive from God when you seek for Christ and his righteousness over the gratification of fleshly desires. Ruth is going to receive immeasurably more than she could have imagined when she came to Bethlehem with Naomi at the end of chapter one. She's going to be put in the royal line of Israel. More than that, this is because she turned away from worldly desires in pursuit of her adopted family's good. Boaz blesses her for her evident faith her own loving kindness, which she has now demonstrated in several different ways. Her loving kindness to Naomi. Her loving kindness to her deceased husband, Mathlon and his family name. Her loving kindness to the clan of Elimelech, of which Boaz is a member. Even unto Israel, the people of God. And her devotion to God himself in all of these various ways. But he indicates here that he too receives a blessing. He's going to be wed to a faithful woman. He's going to redeem Ruth. And so her search seems to come to a climactic finale. I open with a silly question, and now I'm going to ask you a serious one. How shall a sinner be justified and established in holiness forever? How shall a sinner be justified and established in holiness forever? God's answer to that question what theologians call the covenant of grace. And how do sinners enter into this covenant of grace? What is the plan of redemption from our perspective? Thomas Watson, the Puritan, on coming into covenant, gives this description on on what it is from our standpoint to come into covenant with God. He gives three steps. First, seek to God. Search for the Redeemer by prayer. He quotes Augustine, exige ad domino, Misericordion, demand compassion from the Lord. Seek for God, to God by prayer. Demand compassion from the Lord. To put it another way, take the gates of heaven by storm. Step two: break off the covenant with sin. We saw in a certain sense Ruth break off the covenant with the gods of Moab by leaving that land. But you and I, we are to break off the covenant with sin into which we are born as descendants of Adam. Before the marriage covenant, there needs to be a divorce. There's no bigamy in the kingdom of heaven. Watson asks, what king will enter into covenant with someone in league with his enemies? Would we create an alliance with a foreign power that's allied to a country with which we are at war. No, that makes no sense. We seem to do that sometimes as a country, but that's not how it's supposed to be. You need to break off that covenant with sin to enter into the covenant of grace with God. And then thirdly, if you would enter into the bond of the covenant, get faith in the blood of the covenant. I've sought to show you from this text that the sincere search for a redeemer is founded upon faith. It's marked by obedience, and it results in spiritual blessing. It's founded upon faith, and we saw Naomi's faith-filled plan. It's marked by obedience. We saw Ruth's obedient search, and then it results in spiritual blessing, and we saw Boaz's blessed discovery and the blessing upon him and the blessing upon Ruth in that picture. And we'll look more into Boaz's response and then his plan of redemption next week. But I want to leave you with this idea the sincere search for a redeemer what redeemer are you looking for not boaz of bethlehem but jesus christ jesus of nazareth who is sometimes called a redeemer in scripture among other names and the hebrew word there as we've seen again and again in the book of ruth signifies someone who is close in relationship a close relative someone who as watson put it is near akin and has right to redeem a mortgage <laughs> So Christ is near of kin to us. Being our elder brother, therefore, has the best right to redeem us. There is no other plan of redemption for sinners in this world but to turn from their sin, to break covenant with it, and with faith in the shed blood of God in Christ, call upon him uh, for salvation to be welcomed into God's family. And at the apex of that, you and I are made members of his bride, of his body, even adopted sons and daughters. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.org.